Incest, pedophilia, and rape are not the things you want in your mind when you are thinking of an island paradise. More likely, cold drinks, warm sand, and sun are at the top of your list. Sadly, what many believe to be an island paradise was rocked with allegations of sexual depravity when several young local girls came forward with information about many of the men living on Pitcairn Island. This scandal rocked the small community, then the world, and revealed over a century of what could be described factually as deep-rooted moral depravity. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. I've got quite the case for you this week. It does involve the sexual abuse of children, so if that's a trigger for you, you may want to skip this week's episode. A quick boat-keeping note. It was brought to my attention last week that I should probably let new listeners know each week that my family and I do currently live and record on a small sailboat. That helps explain some of the odd noises you might hear in the background. There are no complaints, as it's a pretty peaceful noise, but it's there now and then, and I can't edit it out without making the rest of the recording sound distorted. This week you won't hear waves in the background, which is usually the most common sound, But if you listen closely, you can hear the sound of shrimp eating algae from our boat's hull. Maybe once they hear this case, they'll lose their appetite. Pitcairn Island is a beautiful, huge, rocky island protruding from the ocean. It's about halfway between New Zealand and Chile. It's one of the world's most remote inhabited areas. In fact, there's no airstrip, no safe harbor to hold the boats and no regularly scheduled shipping services. Most visitors hitch a lift on a container vessel that passes nearby, or they fly to the nearest island, then hop on a boat for a 30-hour boat ride to Pitcairn. In order to be allowed on the island, you have to apply and be accepted, but most of the requests are turned down. Maybe you're asking, why in the world would someone choose to live here? Well, let me tell you what I learned about the first inhabitants of the island and a little bit about its history. I feel it's crucial to this case. Pitcairn is the last holding of the British Empire in the Pacific Ocean. It's a place that's so remote and so unlikely to have inhabitants, and frankly, so lost in time, it seems more like a dream than a reality. The place is real, though, and it's a tiny spot on a map out in the middle of the South Pacific. It's more than 3,000 miles away from any continent. The island itself is not much bigger than New York's Central Park, and it's surrounded completely by cliffs and ocean. This isolated, salty piece of land was determined to be the perfect place for mutineers to hide after stealing a British Navy ship. In 1789, a sailing ship named the HMS Bounty left the island of Tahiti, where sailors had spent the last six months. For the captain and his crew, it had been six months of food, fun, and debauchery. The food was delicious and the scenery exquisite, but in all reality, what the sailors loved the most was the Tahitian maidens. The Tahitians were very sexually open. In fact, when the HMS Bounty arrived in the bay, Tahitian women swam out naked to greet the men. They were invited to shore to feast with the islanders, and they introduced the men to a sexual culture that would have humbled the greatest lovers of the time. 
Captain James Cook, on one of his earliest visits to Tahiti, spoke of the sexual freeness in his diary. He wrote that the crew had been invited to a ceremony given by Tahitian royalty in which a young fellow over six feet tall performed the rites of Venus to a little girl about 11 to 12 years of age, and he did this publicly. The experiences on the island changed the men from the bounty in a way they could never recover from. It was difficult for the captain to get the men to leave. When they finally set sail, after only three weeks at sea, Captain Bly awoke with a sword at his throat. His first mate, Christian Fletcher, was leading a mutiny, and he took control of the ship. Captain Bly and a crew of 18 who remained loyal to the British Navy were placed aboard a 23-foot cutter and were left to drift in the ocean. Somehow they survived traveling over 3,600 miles to safety. No one seemed to know why the mutiny took place, but it's believed that it was because of the paradise offered freely in Tahiti. The mutineers returned there and picked up several young women and a half dozen Polynesian men from several other nearby islands. Christian Fletcher, the new mutineer captain, sailed for nine months, crisscrossing the ocean trying to find the perfect place to hide. He knew he was being hunted by the British Navy and there would be hell to pay if he and his men were caught. He was studying the charts one day and noticed a tiny little dot on one of the charts and decided he wanted to go investigate it to see if it was livable and to possibly make it a home. He sailed to this tiny speck named Pitcairn. It had been named after a 15-year-old midshipman that had first seen the island. He zigzagged back and forth for another two months before someone on the ship finally spotted the island, about 180 miles from where it was charted. Land ho, the men yelled. I know a couple people that insult would fit. The mutineers made it to shore, and after evaluating the landscape, they decided it was Pitcairn Island that would be their home. They set the HMS Bounty on fire, and it sank to the bottom of the sea, just outside the entrance of the island. Nearly 20 years later, in 1808, an American seal hunting ship came across the island. A canoe holding three tall young teenagers steered out smoothly and skillfully through the heavy surf to meet the ship. The crew was astonished when the boys spoke English. The first introduced himself as Friday, October Christian. The captain of the seal hunting ship knew immediately that he had solved one of the greatest mysteries of the sea. When they went to shore, there was only one mutineer still alive. It was John Adams. He was a heavy drinking old man who claimed the role of the island's preacher. He told the seedy tale of the mutinous outcome. He said that nine of the mutineers, 12 Tahitian women, and six men and one baby had landed on the island. Only Adams and four of the original women remained alive. Five of the mutineers had been murdered by the Polynesians, who began to believe that the Englishmen had enslaved them and taken their women. This was probably true. The sailors then killed many of the Polynesian men in retribution. Another mutineer was executed for the, quote, well-being of the community, and one, after learning how to brew a strong drink from some of the local flora and fauna, got stinking drunk and leapt from a cliff 
His name was McCoy. The steep cliff on the island was named after his actions. McCoy's drop can be visited today if you are given permission to visit the island. Some of the crew had died from natural causes. Captain Christian, who had engineered the mutiny, unfortunately had not found his paradise. He did have three children by his Tahitian wife, but he was one of the first to die after only three years on the island. He was tending to yams in his garden when one of the Polynesian men shot him in the back. His last words were, quote, Oh dear, and this is now a well-known and commonly visited area on the island. The captain of the seal ship estimated the island's population to be about 35. The Pitcairn inhabitants moved into survival mode. They had already begun having sex with their own relatives. Friday, October Christian, was only 14 when he married one of the mutineers' 31-year-old widows, and still, as a teenager, he had two children of his own. The seal ship left, and about six years later, two British vessels arrived. John Adams was still alive, and he was told he would not be taken back to England and hung. In London, the word of the strange tale of what happened to the bounty had spread like crazy. Pitcairn would never be forgotten, but the attention did not bring any help or other people to the island. It was left alone through typhoons, droughts, diseases, and lack of medical care. For over a hundred years, the only method of communication was lanterns waved at passing ships, or the occasional ship that stopped by. Every now and then, shipwrecked sailors would wash up on the island, but other people who learned of it set their sights on going there. Whalers and rogues, dreamers and swashbuckling pirates came and went, even those who came for a brief layover at the small island, or a quickie as I like to call it, would help strengthen the genetic pool of the islanders, and the islanders took advantage of these situations. The Pitcairners were definitely building a reputation of moral indecency, as a passerby called it at the time. Britain knew about Pitcairn's peculiar cultural trait and permitted it to continue for over a century. Council records are covered with pleas to the British administrators asking for help to curb cultural degeneracy, as one communication put it. Another letter followed later that said, We are at a standstill concerning the support of illegitimate children on the island. So here they were having relationships with anyone who happened to pass through the island, and with each other pretty regularly. But they're trying to figure out what to do and who was responsible for the children that come from these affairs. By 1938, the islanders had given up on British help. They just shrugged their shoulders and readopted their survival mode thinking, rationalizing that the island needed all the population that it could muster. They were quoted as saying that these children of the night might have saved the island. By the time the Second World War began, prostitution and adultery were very common, and the pastor working at the island at the time complained to the high commissioner, saying that the islanders have almost no ambition, he wrote, except to break in the young girls. His words, not mine. The most ambitious of the men wanted to break in all the girls on the island. The young men in question ended up being the fathers and grandfathers of the men accused in 2001 of raping young girls on Pitcairn Island. 
Perhaps it was generations of sexual misconduct, sweeping things under the rug and rationalizing that allowed this misjustice to occur. The scandal in Pitcairn began to emerge in 1996. An Adventist minister complained to British authorities that his 11-year-old had been raped by a 20-year-old Sean Christian. Two detectives from Kent, London, sailed to Pitcairn and were the first British officers to ever set foot on the island. When they arrived at the island, they had to get on a longboat driven by one of the natives and carried through the breaking surf to the shore. The detective said, The men looked quite frightening. They had knives on their belts. Their hair was all over the place, and they wore no shoes. They came climbing up a rope ladder on the side of the ship. If I were on that boat and had men with knives climbing ladders like pirates, I'd be scared too. After a harrowing ride through the breaking waves, they found an island like nothing they had ever seen before. There were no sandy beaches or protective coral reef, just open sea and ragged cliffs. In 1996, Pitcairn was just coming into something that resembled the rest of the world. But the first VCRs had been introduced to the islanders. Yes, they had seen the movies made about the HMS Bounty and the mutineers. The one with Clark Gable was their favorite. They also had, as one reporter called it, a great collection of porn. The advancement of vehicles went from a wheelbarrow to bicycles to motorcycles and now four-wheelers. The population of Pitcairn was quite small. There were really only four families, and these families totaled about 50 people. These people were absolutely dependent on one another for survival, but because the island was so small, there were a lot of arguments and tons of gossip. The gossip mill was fueled by their sexual escapades. The detectives and almost anyone who visited the island felt the claustrophobia, the feeling of being closed in, because the island never allowed anyone to be alone. You'd think that out in the middle of nowhere, your problem would be loneliness, but the actual problem was trying to get away from anyone because there was no place to go. Sometimes the feeling is similar on our boat. We have a vast ocean and plenty of space all around us, but honestly, my husband and I crave alone time from our kids and from each other sometimes. The detectives who had come to investigate the claim of rape dropped the case against Sean Christian because there was insufficient evidence. Sean admitted to consensual sex and handed over love letters that the girl had sent him. The Pitcairners don't follow Britain's legal code. They had their own, and besides, who would enforce the British laws anyway? They didn't have an attorney or judge on the island, and English law books didn't even arrive on Pitcairn until 1997. Most of the island's rules were designed to address petty theft, property disputes, and strange issues local to Pitcairn. For example, shouting sails ho without a ship on the horizon was illegal. There were no references made to rape, but carnal knowledge or sex with a minor called for a hundred days in jail. The age of consent was always in dispute and ranged from 12 to 15 years old. Most damning was the statute of limitations for any crime. It was only six months. The islanders had an assigned police officer. Her name was Meralda Warren. She had never ever made an arrest, and the island's magistrate was her brother Jay. Jay had never held a court. Because of the disarray of the legal system, 
the detective suggested that London send a full-time representative. London didn't want to spend the expenses to do this, so they sent an officer for a 90-day training period, once every other year. The officer's name was Gail Cox. She immediately clashed with Meralda Warren, and during her first visit in 1997, she realized that there were unusual sexual morals. On her second visit, only two years later, she was met with a crisis. Two 15-year-old island girls made allegations that they had been sexually assaulted by a visiting New Zealander named Ricky Quinn. As Officer Cox tried to follow up on these allegations, Meralda seemed to be undermining the case. Meralda stated that Cox didn't understand the situation. She said that 15-year-old girls on Pitcairn were sexually active. Officer Cox wouldn't relent and pressed Jay into holding his first trial. At the trial, the accused pleaded guilty to one count of carnal knowledge. Cox was pressing for a second charge. The offense had allegedly occurred in an outhouse, which was known on the island as a Duncan, and was often used as a place for sex. When Cox left the island, Quinn's conviction was promptly overturned. But, while she was still there, Pitcairn's sordid sexual past came to the forefront. Another girl came forward saying that age 11, she had been gagged and raped by Mayor Steve Christian's sons, Sean and Randy. Now, Pitcairners face serious criminal charges involving Pitcairners against Pitcairners, with no real law and no real way to deal with these issues. London once again sent detectives. One had come the first time, and a new partner came with him. When the detectives were questioned, the brothers who were accused of rape denied the allegations. The detectives were about to return home when they decided to interview another young Pitcairn woman who now lived in Auckland, New Zealand. She was a very close friend of the accuser. They went to Auckland and they knocked on her door one evening. She knew nothing about the allegations and the case building in Pitcairn, but as the police interviewed her, she said in passing that she had been raped at 10 then went on to say that you wouldn't find a girl on Pitcairn who reached the age of 12 and was still a virgin. She sort of unknowingly became the whistleblower and spent all of the next day at the police station spinning tales of incident after incident of rape and pedophilia. The detectives then hunted down every other woman who came of age on Pitcairn Island over the last 40 years. 24 of them agreed to make statements. The officials uncovered over 100 allegations of sexual abuse against 31 men, four of whom had already died. More than 30 of the complaints could be defined as rape under English law, and all were of girls who were underage at the time. Many of the allegations were more than 20 years old. Of course, these numbers astonished the authorities and told us a sad tale about the young women on Pitcairn Island. One of the saddest things was that many of the people on the island were in a state of denial, and many of the women, even their own mothers, blamed the girls. This was partly because the men were confused and terrified. The families worried about how they would be able to continue their lives if the men were gone. A social worker came to the island and began to untangle a society in which sex permeated everything. 
There were childhood sex games and abuse. There were many pregnancies and abortions among young unmarried girls. There were even reports that there was early sexual manipulation used regularly to comfort babies. It had been part of the culture of the island for many years. The women talked about what happened on the island, and they recounted a, quote, breaking in at around age 12 or less. This was a forced rape, but later they just came to accept it because they couldn't get away, so they would just lie there, docilely, as the men took advantage of them. When the men were interviewed, many of them implicated themselves. The men saw it as a natural thing for them to do, as it had always been done on the island for many years. They were naive and poorly educated, and they shrugged off the assault of the girls and couldn't understand why the police were making such a big deal out of something that was so ordinary. One of the Pitcairners confessed to asking an 11-year-old if she was having sex with her 11-year-old boyfriend. She said she wasn't, and then the man asked her if she wanted to practice to help her get ready. The detective asked, why would you even consider asking a girl of that age something like that, or offering, I don't know what to even call it, maybe services? His response was, well, on the island, everyone's having sex by that age. So the police officer then asked, do you think it's okay to have sex with underage girls? And their responses were, it seems like it's been that way down through the times. He realized what he was saying and then said, I guess that was back then, and times are changing now, and obviously what we did was not normal. Back in London, officials realized what was going on in Pitcairn, and it would definitely be a sensational tabloid headline. So they tried to keep it quiet as much as possible while they did their investigation. When it came time for trial, defense lawyers wanted the trial to take place on Pitcairn. Unfortunately, Pitcairn didn't have running water, continuous electricity, hotels, overnight facilities, or even regular transportation. So in order to have this trial, London set up a logistics office and they opened their pocketbooks. They began chartering yachts, shipping out supplies, and overseeing construction on the island. They put in that the total cost of the trial was at about $14 million, but many believe it was much more. Many of the men who were accused of the crimes began helping to build a new six-cell prison because they believed the outcome of the case was determined before the trials were even held. So here are the men of Pitcairn Island are building their own jail. In 2004, several journalists applied for permission to visit the island and were finally granted permission to come. They were met by 15 women. This was almost the entire adult population of the island. At the time, the name of the seven defendants being accused by the other islanders was still being suppressed by a court order. However, the journalists soon found out that every woman in the room was related to one or more of the men. The journalists had been allowed onto the island to be told that their menfolk were not, quote, perverts or hardened criminals. They were decent, hard-working family men. The islanders would never tolerate having their children be interfered with, and no one on the island had ever been raped. The women then went on to state that the victims were only girls who would know exactly what they were doing. Again, not my words, theirs. The women then went on to explain that the British deemed 
that underage sex was the norm on Pitcairn. One of the women told the journalist matter-of-factly that she had lost her virginity at 13. She said, quote, I felt hot shit about it, too. I felt like a big lady. That was followed by another woman saying, I had it at 12, and I felt I was shit hot, too. A third chimed in with, We all thought sex was like food on the table. The journalist must have looked surprised, because the women demanded, At what age did they start having sex? and it was clear that the question could not be avoided. So some of the responses by the journalists met with chuckles and laughter from the islanders. The women did not believe that anyone could have lost their virginity at 18. The women then went on to say that they felt that the trial was an elaborate plot to close the island down. They believed that because the island had become a financial burden, there was just one way to get everyone off it, and that was to jail the men who were the backbone of the community. The journalists then went on to ask the women, well, what about all the young girls' accounts of molestation? Were they false claims? At this point, one of the women revealed that she had made a statement in 2000 alleging sexual abuse by the Pitcairn men. She added that she only made the statement under duress. She explained that the detective dragged her into the police station, and she was offered good money for each person she could name. Another woman went on to say that she also made a statement, but only after being browbeaten by police. These claims of coercion were denied by the police. Two sisters that were no longer living in Pitcairn in 2000 said they were prepared to go to court, but after talking to family and really thinking about it, they changed their minds. One of them claimed that she wanted it just as bad as them, meaning the man, and that it was very much a mutual thing. This reevaluation and change in her statement took place after she and the other young woman returned to Pitcairn Island. Their mother declared that no Pitcairn girl had ever been abused, but then she followed that statement by saying that she had a unpleasant experience as a child, but it didn't affect her. She clarified by saying, I was probably luckier than some I read about. I was 10 at the time, but even at 10, I knew it was wrong. It's a bad thing, and I screamed like hell. Clearly, there are some very strong contradictory statements here. These women were desperately trying to preserve their families, lifestyles, and homes, and the only way they could do this was by justifying the actions of their men, their fathers, brothers, husbands, and sons. One mother said that her daughter had just spoken to the police. She thought, what on earth is that girl thinking? I told the cops not one of those girls went this way with her eyes shut. They knew exactly what they were doing. The women here are loose, and it's not the men's fault. What are they supposed to do? These statements seem harsh and derogatory, but when the conversation moved to the possibility of their male relatives being jailed, the women suddenly appeared vulnerable. One of them said, without the men, you might as well just pick pick Karen up and throw it away because no one's going to be able to survive here. The population has already declined to a crisis point, and the women said that even if a couple of the men were locked up, there would be too few left to crew the longboats, which were used to carry people and supplies to the island. One woman stood to lose the most. Among the seven defendants on Pitcairn, she counted her brother, her husband, her son, her father, and another six men were facing court in New Zealand as they had already moved off the island. This 
group of men included her other brother and two more of her sons. She said, we lived as one big family on the island, and nothing will ever be the same. At the end of September in 2004, the trial began. Strangers strode down the main street in dark suits and shoes and long black gowns. The first defendant stood in the front row of the public gallery. He was wearing shorts, flip-flops, and a blue t-shirt. The man was the island's 53-year-old mayor, Stevens Christian. He was clearly upset and scowling. This was because the suppression order had just been lifted, and he, along with others, could be named for the first time in media reports. He faced six counts of rape and four of indecent assault. He sat in the courtroom, leaning back in his chair with his arms folded, as the court heard about his offenses that dated from 1964 to 1975. Like the other defendants, except for one, he pleaded not guilty to all the charges. After a short while, a satellite link with a television set was brought into the room, and a female figure appeared on the monitor. She was middle-aged and had red hair, and was clearly nervous and afraid. She was one of the accusers, and like many victims, didn't want to return to Pitcairn to give evidence. One of the lawyers began to question her gently. She described an incident that occurred when she was 11 or 12. She was with a group of young children, walking out for a picnic. She fell behind and noticed Steve and two other boys waiting for her under some trees. Steve grabbed a hold of her and pushed her to the ground, and then the other two pinned her down as he raped her. She was a virgin at the time and struggled to break free. When he finished, he said to his friends, It's your turn if you want. They declined, and the three of them ran off laughing. The woman claimed that Steve raped her two or three more times. When she was asked why she didn't tell her parents, she replied, They couldn't do anything about it. There's nobody on the island that you can turn to for anything like this. That's the way of life on Pitcairn. You get abused, you get raped. It's just a normal way of life there when I was growing up. She was then asked why she didn't talk to her husband about the abuse, and she said she didn't want to disillusion him. She continued on while crying. Everybody in the outside world thinks of Pitcairn as a paradise, but it was sheer hell back home when I was growing up. The next to be put on the stand was Dave Brown, who was 49. He was accused of assaulting five victims, including a five-year-old girl who he allegedly forced to give him oral sex. He was also accused of molesting a 15-year-old girl during a spearfishing trip and a 14-year-old girl while she was driving his quad bike. After him came his father, Len Brown, who was 78 years old. He was charged of raping one of Steve's victims as well. The next man, Dennis Christian, who was 49, admitted to three charges of sexual assault. A fifth man, Jay Warren, 47, who was the former Pitcairn magistrate, was accused and cleared of molesting a 12-year-old girl while swimming in Bounty Bay. The next accused was Terry Young. He was 45 and the island's electrician. He allegedly raped a 12-year-old weekly when they went to collect firewood together. He had been indecently assaulting her from the age of six years old. The next accused was the mayor's 30-year-old son, Randy. He was accused of gagging and raping a 10-year-old in a banana grove. He did this with the help of his younger brother. The two men allegedly took turns holding her down. His younger brother 
Sean, and Brian Young were also charged with repeatedly raping two sisters under the age of 10. In the midst of the trials taking place, life had to go on normally as it could on Pitcairn. The trial did come to a standstill one day, though. It was cruise ship day. That morning, the court doors were closed and the windows were shuttered. The men transformed from criminal defendants into salesmen and tourist guides. Offshore, a clipper ship named the Odyssey had 98 aging but eager tourists. Trial or no trial, no day was bigger or busier than cruise ship day. The defendants steered the longboats out into the ocean and retrieved visitors who immediately began shopping for stamps and souvenirs and climbing all over the rocks and cliffs. They visited hot spots like John Adams' grave, McCann's drop, Oh Dear, the site of one of the early homes, and even Fletcher Christian's cave high up on the rocky peaks where he often went off to be alone. Tourists came and went, buying t-shirts, and the very hard-to-get Pitcairn mailing stamps, as well as knick-knacks that locals made to sell when the tourists came. At the boat landing, stalls had been put up and tourists were milling around, talking with the locals, asking them, What generation Pitcairner are you? The journalists watched the hub of activity, feeling amazed. As the day went on, the journalists watched the locals doing their work and participating in the fun. Many of the journalists left the island, They chose to go out to the cruise ship, where they were able to put their feet into the ship's plush carpet and order cold tropical drinks from the bar. They enjoyed talking to people who weren't part of the extended Pitcairn family. One of the journalists was asked whether or not they were a native. The journalist replied no. The tourist then asked if the journalist worked on the boats then. No, replied the journalist. So what are you doing on Pitcairn, was the next question. The journalist replied, I'm covering the trials, you know, the child abuse sex trials. Oh, I see, the tourist said while backing away. That must be interesting. It was strange for the journalists to see themselves and the tourists rubbing elbows with the accused, the molesters, and the pedophiles. Later that evening, as the day ended, the mayor charbroiled yellowfin tuna for all the visitors but the next day was back to reality, or was now the Pitcairn reality. The trials continued. Later, one of the journalists found herself out fishing with Len Brown. He was the 78-year-old. He had been convicted of rape twice. As she watched him skip barefoot across the jagged rocks with a spear in one hand and a fishing tackle box in the other, she said she looked out to sea and saw a small motorboat driven by one of the victim's fathers. He was out fishing with the man who had just been given a prison sentence for raping his daughter. When the trial ended, the men were still allowed to roam free, although many had been convicted. All their lawyers were appealing, so they were allowed to stay on the island. In 2006, the private counsel threw out all the appeals, and four of the men went to jail. Two more joined them after being convicted at trials later that year. Their sentences were incredibly lenient. Randy Christian, who drew the longest term, which was six years, for four rapes. This is in stark opposition to English law, which carries a life imprisonment for rape. The most lenient sentence went to Dennis Christian, 
who was the only man to plead guilty to his charges. He also apologized to his victims before the trials. He received 300 hours of community service. And that was the end of the trial on Pitcairn Island. In December, later that year, three more men were tried in Auckland, New Zealand. Brian Young was the last to be tried. He testified and cracked the window into what might be another part of the cause of the abuse. He said that he had watched the school teacher have sex with a schoolgirl, and that he and his chums had gotten their sex education watching one parent have sex with the parent of another family. Mayor Stephen Christian did lose his job and was sentenced to three years in jail. But wait, the story doesn't end there. Nope, there's more. A new mayor was assigned to the role. His name was Michael Warren. In 2010, his home and office were raided. I looked for details on how his home could have been raided with only about 50 people living on the island. In my mind, I imagine all the people sneaking around behind each other's back trying to make it a surprise, but I doubt that it was actually a surprise. I couldn't find those details on the raid, but I do know what was found during the raid. On his computers, they found over 1,000 pictures of child pornography, and he was charged with engaging in an online sex chat with a person who was reported to being a 15-year-old girl. In 2016, he spent 10 months in prison and was guarded by four guards who were sent from New Zealand. The jail, which was built to house the six men who were convicted in the earlier trial, was now being used as a place to sleep by visitors to the island. He did his time, but the story still doesn't end there. New charges have been pressed as of October 14, 2020. These charges are nothing compared to what he had been charged with in the past. He is accused of roaming the island nude. He is facing three charges of behaving in an indecent manner because he walked the island without clothes, once in January and twice in June. These charges only carry a term of 40 days in jail and a $100 fine, but his actions result in the unique problems with charging, trying, and punishing the crimes on the island. So there you have it, the unique, frustrating, and sordid history of Pitcairn Island. I'd love to know your thoughts. Do you think those jail terms were long enough? Do you think the Pitcairn Islanders should be supported by the British? Or do you think they should just go on living how they've lived for years, making their own laws? There were so many questions that I had during this case, and honestly, I don't think I've come up with any clear answers. I'd love to hear your thoughts, though. You can reach out to me on Facebook, TikTok, or at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. You can also reach me through Instagram. Thanks for listening. I'd love for you to take a minute to give Twisted Travel and True Crime a nice rating and review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to go a step further and donate some money to the show, you can do that as well. There are links in the show description that will allow you to give a one-time donation or to donate monthly. This week I have a couple listeners I'd like to thank. Amy D., Claire D., and Jennifer H. for their kind words and recommendations on social media. And to Tammy S. for a couple of case recommendations. Truly, word-of-mouth recommendations are the best. And so I thank you all, 
and all of you wonderful listeners for spreading the word. To each and every one of you, I wish you fair winds and following seas.